Hello everyone and welcome to Making Remote Work. Today I have the pleasure of uh, hosting Roderick Swab, Associate Professor of Organizational Behavior at INSEAD. Roderick, welcome to Making Remote Work. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah. Thanks for being here. Roderick, can you please introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your research? Of course, yes. Pleasure. So, um, so I'm originally from the Netherlands, and I, uh, you know, I studied uh, at the University of Amsterdam, uh, where I, uh, in my dissertation, actually started already with an interest, actually, in understanding like what makes negotiators actually perform well. And uh, over the years, actually, and that's been uh, more than 20 years ago. And uh, you know, over the years, I've been fascinated by by two overarching questions, and that is, on the one hand, actually, like. How do communication channels actually, you know, how we actually, you know, meet with others like in person, on the phone or over email, uh, how do those like channels interact with, you know, our orientation in a negotiation to compete or cooperate, right? to influence like also like you know, the quality of our, of our outcomes. Uh, my second uh, line of research focuses actually on the role of hierarchy and hierarchical differences in teams, and how that actually affects like conflict, coordination and performance in groups and also in negotiations. So this would be quite uh, interesting for the audience. Um, as, I, as I wrote to you, there were a lot of questions on negotiating or working with customers, on dealing with all sorts of uh, conflictual situations at work. So I think this would be kind of an interest for practitioners of, of remote and employees that have now been forced to work remotely. But let me start with asking you a bit about how you see this COVID-19 pandemic situation and how this influences how we do things right now, from your perspective. Yeah, so I think one thing actually that we clearly see in the current crisis is actually the acceleration and the adoption of, of virtual and online tools. Right? So video conferencing, you know, phone, text, chat, et cetera. Right? And so we all experience this rapid acceleration actually in the adoption of like online technologies due, due to the pandemic. And so, you know, in the past few months alone, like video conferencing apps like Zoom and uh, so others actually have been downloaded by more than a factor of 20, right? So very rapid like increase. Also, actually, I just uh, looked it up actually on Google Trends. You see also that like you know, things like Zoom, uh, you know, was more a more popular search term actually in March, April than COVID-19, right? So it's clearly suggests that people try to understand like what to do now, right? We have to do things differently. So. So. Because we will, we will go into depth into negotiation, can we, and then we will go into the use of technology, right, during, the, during negotiation as well, because there are differences. But can we get uh, everyone on the same page on what you study about negotiation and what's important in negotiation? Absolutely, absolutely. So I think, you know, first, actually, so one more thing I wanted to say, actually, about, you know, the, the current situation is that I think, you know, Many people kind of seem to make a mistake, actually, that this trend towards like or the shift towards like you know using more technology would also actually bring about like more impersonal and and impoverished like business interactions and, and negotiations, right? So, Zoom fatigue actually clearly has kicked in, and also like some of our surveys confirm actually that managers believe that face-to-face -face negotiations you know, are still required, and that you know to get to an optimal deal, actually, you know, we need eye contact, we need to meet in person, we need to be able to shake hands. 
right? And so what is actually interesting actually is that our own research kind of like the, defies some of like this, 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 this widespread belief that we always need like face-to-face -face contact actually to do well, right? In fact, our research shows, you know, that virtual negotiations can be equally and sometimes even more effective than you know, in-person ones, right? So, um, the question then is really like, how do we use some of this research, right, in this domain to better understand kind of the strengths and weaknesses actually that different like communication channels and virtual like online tools actually uh, bring about uh, to negotiate more superior deals. Now, in, 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 and I think actually this is, this is very important to address because, and, and very useful to understand because um, even though in some economies or in some countries actually we see that the situation is actually improving slightly, uh, the safe distancing measures actually will still actually you know apply right and um and the quickest vaccine also in history you know what was it like took over four years actually to develop so you know the virtual tools actually are here to stay for the for the you know for the time being right and and i suspect also for you know much longer than that so we have to also kind of better understand like what the impact is and how we can use actually these communication channels you know in a more optimal way so as you asked me, like, you know, what are some of the basics, right? And so, because I already mentioned like, you know, what are, you know, we, we strive for, for superior deals, but what exactly, you know, do we mean by that? Right? so in negotiations more generally, you know, a high quality deal can be, can be defined in, in, in two ways, right? So first a high quality outcome actually can refer to successfully reaching an agreement when there is one or more possible agreements that would make our, both parties actually better off rather than walking away. Right, from the table, which would leave you know potentially both parties worse off than if a deal had been reached. The second way, actually, we define like a high quality deal, is that when it involves actually reaching an agreement that expands the total amount of resources available to both parties. Right, and so we often refer to this as you know, a joint gain or a win-win outcome. Right? By looking into the underlying preferences actually of both sides, actually we realize that we can make some trade-offs actually and both be better off. So that's really what we actually focus on, actually, what we mean when you know, we define like, or when we refer to superior deals. Now, whether or not we can achieve such outcomes um, depends very heavily, actually, on the extent to which we are willing and able to share and exchange information with our counterpart. And note that also that I don't say our opponent, I always talk about counterpart. Right? Uh, it's a subtle difference, but also important, right? Because you know, we are just not just there for ourselves in the negotiation. Uh, um, and so this is also work actually that was done by three very famous like Dutch psychologists, Karsten de Dreux, Bernard Neustadt, and, and Daphne Knippenberg, uh, who came up with this motivated information processing theory. And that also, you know, suggests that a lot of what we do in the context of negotiations and in making decisions depends actually on people's ability and willingness actually to share information actually effectively. So this led then also us to question, like how do different communication channels, not just face-to-face, -face, but also alternative channels actually, how did they actually influence our ability to share and integrate information, which is so essential, right, for these high quality outcomes to emerge. Now, when I talk about like communication channels, you know, there are a number of different channels actually that we can think of, right? So very often actually when we talk about different communication channels we think about like how they can vary in terms of like what we call richness or the potential to convey the sensation of social presence right so now we are actually in a zoom session and you know i can see you not actually and it makes it very easy to coordinate right our behavior when to speak or when to actually you know be quiet 
right? And so, uh, and so that can be very important in a negotiation, right? So a phone conversation may allow you to feel psychologically close to someone else actually on the other side of the world. Uh, likewise, video conferencing actually that also adds some visual cues uh, to conversation may contribute even more to that feeling, right? Of being both a kind of socially present. So on the other hand, actually the impersonal nature of like sometimes like email exchanges actually can leave some of us actually feeling also distant at times. So that's one way actually to think about like these communication channels, right? So they're very on a spectrum actually of how rich they are. Now, can we meet in person? If not, actually, can we see the other side, or hear the other side? The second dimension actually on which these communication channels tend to differ is the level of synchronicity, right? So or the extent to which like individuals kind of work on the same activity at the same time. Right? So phone calls, video conferences, but also like WhatsApp chats, allow us also to respond instantaneously to what someone else actually has to say. Right? Whereas like asynchronous media, such as email, voicemail, uh, and even fax messages for those who still remember that actually, uh, they actually cause this delay. Right? So, and very often we also hear, you know, these ideas that, you know, asynchronous media like email can create a lot of problems, right? And there are some very famous examples actually of like how they cause like sometimes even disasters, right? So uh, I remember actually in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina in 2005 in the US, uh, where it turned out actually that, you know, some of the federal emergency management agency employees actually you know, missed out on some really important opportunities to coordinate more effectively. That then, you know, caused a lot of delay and how quickly they could assist because they were actually coordinating mostly over email. So that's just one example, right? But we can think of lots of different examples actually of how like email actually can you know, create all these difficulties. So that's just to say, you know, what we mean actually by superior deals and negotiations, what is important, but also actually, um, you know, what communication channels actually tend to capture, at least in our view. So, so which one is the best? Is it video? Is it uh, a chat? Yes. So for a very long time, right? So that's an interesting question. So for a very long time, um, at least when you look at the research, there was a very clear assumption actually that um, that face-to-face -face, uh, communication channels uh, and, and richer channels that, for example, enable us also to see the other side you know, or, or even hear the other side, would be really critical actually for very complex tasks like negotiations or group decision-making tasks where we need to kind of like combine our expertise to make like a more optimal decision. And so the assumption was actually, you know, the more complex your task, also the richer the channel actually uh, you need. But it was actually, you know, strong, this strong assumption actually that technology would really determine whether we would interact successfully or not, right? It all depends actually on what sort of channel that we have available. So although this you know, idea kind of makes intuitive sense, and also when we you know, survey you know, executives also at INSEAD and we ask them actually you know, what they think actually is the best like, you know, channel to, to negotiate, you know, still there is this idea actually that we like to think that you know, in-person, meeting in-person actually is superior. And so we see actually a very different picture actually when we look uh, at the scientific evidence. Right? So despite this idea making intuitive sense, we love face-to-face. -face. Uh, my colleagues and I actually found that it doesn't really square with what the research actually shows. In fact, you know, what we found was that you know, the prior research actually was all over the place, with some studies actually showing that 
indeed sometimes you know richer contact like having a video conferencing or an in-person meeting is indeed like better uh, to achieve like a higher quality negotiation outcome other times actually we found that it didn't really make a different difference and again other times we found the exact opposite was true that we negotiate better in the absence of face-to-face -face contact or in the absence of visual channels such as in uh, video conferences so how is that explained how can we explain that and yeah so that's 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 exactly you know what my colleagues and i also wanted to try to to explain like how is this even possible right so clearly we don't see much support for this kind of intuition that a lot of people have actually that richer channels are always better right and so rather than assuming that technology you know determines really how we behave what we did is we went actually back to the research that i mentioned before by karsten de Dreux and his colleagues that suggests actually that in order to reach an optimal deal, actually we need to share and integrate information effectively. Now they also say uh, in their work and they also show in their work that whether or not we can do this strongly depends also on whether people seek to cooperate or compete with others in their negotiation. Right. So uh, we have like these orientations to either compete or cooperate, and sometimes we don't know. Right. So some people actually tend to adopt a very cooperative approach to their negotiation. There could be many different reasons for that, right? Because of their personality traits, because of the context actually in which they uh, operate, because they expect like future interaction actually with the other side. Now, some people, you know, would on average actually tend to approach negotiations in a more cooperative way. Other people, on the other hand, tend to have a more competitive approach, and it could be because they share a very competitive history actually with the other side. But it could be other reasons to that. And finally, actually. Uh, there are others actually who are unsure, right? About like what sort of approach to take. Should I cooperate? Should I compete, right? I don't know, yeah. right? And so these orientations, what we thought are very consequential because you know, more cooperative orientations, they lead negotiators also to seek, share and integrate information more effectively to benefit both themselves as well as others. Whereas more competitive orientations, uh, they refer to an approach where people really strive to maximize kind of their own outcomes, right? Claim as much value from the deal as possible. Uh, and it also actually goes hand in hand with them trying to withhold information right, that could potentially benefit others. They also don't trust others. So what we did is actually we put these two kind of uh, ideas together, right? So based on the finding on the one hand, that information exchange and coordination is so critical right, for the quality of negotiation deal. And on the other hand, actually, the finding that people's orientations to cooperate or compete determine whether they are willing and able to do so. My colleagues and I actually suspected that this could also help explain these mixed findings, actually, that we saw uh, on, about the effects uh, of communication channels in negotiations. So to better understand how negotiators also navigate the tension between cooperation and competition, what we did, when, especially when they don't meet face-to-face, -face, what we decided to do was to take stock of the empirical evidence, right? And look at all the published research in this area and also unpublished research in this area. And, uh, and then actually, uh, so we looked only for experimental research where, you know, the researchers brought in like large groups of students or participants Put them into a negotiation simulation and had them actually negotiate on the phone in person over email over whatsapp uh, you name it right? synchronous or asynchronous channels with either visual or vocal channels and so then we went very carefully through all these studies uh, to indicate you know whether the people in that study had either a cooperative orientation 
or competitive orientation or whether they were unsure. And so what we found was actually uh, quite interesting. And, and to some extent, there were also some interesting surprises, actually. So first of all, actually, we found indeed, consistent with this idea that um, you know, richer is always better, we found indeed that like face-to-face -face and richer channels were better uh, uh, when negotiators do not know each other well and faced also more complex negotiations. And by more complex negotiations, I mean, now, very complicated negotiations in the sense that they involve like very challenging and difficult issues to resolve, but also actually when they involve multiple parties, not just two, but sometimes three or four or five different parties. So under those situations, actually, we found that you know, richer channels and even face-to-face -face contact was still superior. And you can imagine also that under these sort of situations, uh, visual and vocal and synchronous contact actually serves a very important function, right? So uh, the, think about it like the presence of this non-semantic information, such as nodding your head or smiling or, or briefly verbalizing actually, you know, things like yeah or mm, you know, to affirm actually that, that you understand what I said. Even your tone of voice and facial expressions, these, these can be quite important, right? To figure out whether you can actually trust the other side enough and what it's safe enough actually to share and in integrate some information with them. So we found indeed that you know the presence of all these channels and face-to-face -face contact resulted in more optimal outcomes and better quality deals when the negotiators did not know each other well, when they were involved like in multi-party negotiations, or when the negotiation itself was very complex. So that was the first part, right? So yes, you know, sometimes actually more and richer is actually better. At the same time, we also found actually that some situations, actually in some situations, there is absolutely no difference. And then here it gets a little bit more interesting and less intuitive also for, for everyone. So we found actually that face-to-face -face contact and richer channels did not have much of an impact on the quality of a deal when the negotiators themselves were already more cooperatively predisposed before going into the negotiation. And that could be because you know, they knew each other, they had already built trust a long time ago, or they shared like common like social ties. They were part of the same social network. Uh, or some you know, work for the same company or the same organization. Right? And so uh, when you know, they already knew each other and already had like this cooperative like history or some like indication that they, you know, they could cooperate. We actually found that it didn't really matter whether they negotiated over email, over the phone, uh, uh, or in person, right? And so you can imagine that the tendency actually to enter negotiations you know, with trust and report actually made it easier also for them to exchange information more freely and made them also less dependent actually on all these like cues that are, you know, conveyed by the communication channel itself. So finally, we find also actually that you know sometimes face-to-face -face contact and richer channels like video conferencing were actually worse. And we found that it was actually the case when negotiators had a very competitive orientation. So in disputes, uh, when they were really trying to seek or trying to maximize uh, the amount of value that they could claim from the negotiation as much as possible, but also actually when they had a very competitive relationship, or perhaps like were involved like in a dispute prior to their negotiation. How is that so, possible? 
So, how does yeah, that so, so I think what is important here is that, you know, to also think a little bit about like, what does the communication channel do with us, right? When we actually start to interact with others. And so face-to-face -face contact, but also richer channels like phone conversations, video conversations, not only help us actually transmit factual information, but that also actually can intensify the feelings, right, for better or worse. And so what we see here actually in this particular group of studies actually where people came into the negotiation with a more competitive motive, a competitive orientation, the presence actually of visual like channels or vocal channels, they escalated the already existing competitive predispositions that they had and made it even more difficult to exchange information. Okay. So, so is it words, more like I see your face and uh, yeah, I'm uh, already angry and I don't want to do it. And uh, why is that? <laughs> it's very funny. Exactly. Right. So you already associate you know, my presence actually with, you know, you have this very negative connotation actually, even okay. when you think of me and my presence. Right. And then when on top of that, actually, you also have to face me literally on a video screen or in person. You can imagine actually that that triggers a lot of anxiety and also okay. perhaps like escalates like negative emotions uh, even further. So, for example, uh, you know, I've, I've studied this also in the context, actually, of, of labor and family disputes in the Netherlands, together with the Dutch Mediation Association. And there, actually, we found that um, there's a very small group of mediators, professional mediators, who understands this, you know, perhaps intuitively, or they also read, you know, some of, some of this research. And uh, so what they actually did was, before bringing in uh, disputants, into the common room where they would all sit together, they would actually separate them. They would restrict them actually from seeing each other, actually from having any sort of contact. And then they would actually try to actually make them feel less anxious, you know, um, like mitigate some of the negative Bring emotions actually already before they all would come into the main room. Uh, likewise, actually, there's some interesting research by Kathleen Bollan from Maastricht University and Martin Oema from the Katholieke Universiteit in Leuven. It also shows actually that in highly emotional like disputes and divorces, actually, more indirect channels, such as email, they're actually more effective in producing a settlement that both sides also feel is acceptable. Right? So in these situations, uh, negotiators or disputants are better off restricting their contact and also face-to-face -face communication and involve like an intermediary, right? Could be actually a professional mediator, but it could also be uh, someone's manager. Right? Very interesting. Uh, Roderick, does it matter how much if I negotiate with you and I know how to use video or Zoom or and certain features of Zoom extremely well, um, would it influence the outcome of the negotiation in my favor if I'm if because I just know how to use the um, uh, the technology better? Absolutely. Or if Absolutely. I if I write better email or or I'm faster with chat. Yes, absolutely. So we also, we do see this actually. And, and so when I, so at INSEAD, I teach a course which is called Negotiation Dynamics. Uh, and when I teach this for our MBA students, actually what I have them do is also, uh, I ask them actually to complete a couple of these simulations, actually these exercises with each other, but then over WhatsApp, right? Or sometimes it's over email. And um, what I, and then what I do is I actually, you know, analyze their data. I ask them actually to share their, the details actually of their conversations with me. And I analyze these conversations 
and I use some linguistic software uh, and also like some, some typing patterns actually to see if they predict actually their outcomes. And so what I see here among other things is very clearly actually your kind of like uh, idea that, you know, if you indeed like master the technology better, if you know how to use the technology better than your counterpart, it does uh, potentially give you uh, an advantage in a negotiation. Now, whether you or not you're willing to use that advantage, uh, that, that's another question. But we do see also that, for example, in WhatsApp negotiations, that the person actually who types a little faster than their counterpart uh, can dominate the conversation also more into their favor, right? which makes also sense. right? If you have better arguments and better prepared and also like uh, a little faster actually than your counterpart, then that comes with an advantage. And we, we clearly see evidence actually of this, like some, something as simple as typing speed actually seems to matter, right, in some situations. Uh, do we, what's, what's our default or is there something like this? What's the, the average um, uh, negotiation strategy? Do people look more for win-win or would they be more competitive? Yeah, so that's, uh, so, so I think most people, um, so, so this, Depends a little bit, so it varies a little bit by 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 culture, personality. Um, but you know, when you when you look at large surveys, actually of like people's value orientations in negotiations, it's you know most people actually about half of the people, uh, at least in my samples actually that I do, you know, when I ask these questions in uh, at INSEAD with our students, it's it's a little bit less than half of the people actually that indicated they're very cooperative. Right? So about 40% actually indicated that they have a very strong cooperative orientation and they'll try to do whatever they can actually you know, to also accommodate the other side. Uh, another 40% or so actually indicates that they, um, uh, that they seek to strive for outcomes actually that are good for themselves, uh, but not necessarily hurt the other side. Right? And then you have a very small group of people, the remaining you know, uh, 20, 10 to 20% or so that actually indicates that, you know, they really seek also to maximize some of these differences. Now, again, this is like a biased sample, like at INSEAD, actually our students are from all over the world. Um, you know, these are business administration students actually that have negotiation experience. So one question is like, how representative is it actually of the general population? I don't think actually these numbers differ that much actually from the general population, but clearly you, you also see that personality traits actually uh, have an have an effect here. So, for example, one of the personality traits that it seems to actually be linked to this somehow is the is our uh, the extent to which we are agreeable. Right? So, people who are very high on agreeableness actually place a lot of value in getting along well with others. And so, you also see actually that people who are very high on the spectrum actually tend to actually make a few more concessions maybe than they should be. And people very low on the spectrum actually you know, they tend to be disagreeable actually they focus also more on getting good outcomes actually for, for themselves for themselves uh, so so it's it's in a very international context you know we see that it's kind of like split with a very small minority actually with a very competitive orientation uh, but it also depends on our personality traits and perhaps also on our cultural values how can we and how can someone who's listening make a remote negotiation or a remote conflict uh, discussion go towards a win-win, right? When you are describing what a win-win means for you, where, uh, where both parties have extended resources and they actually can get way more better deals out of it, it feels like that should be the aim, right? But remote is also 
at least it's it's considered less empathetic because we don't might not uh, know the other side so well. We might not gain trust so uh, so easily. Um, I've I've discussed with a few other researchers, and apparently we are. If we are remote and we don't know the other party, we always think us versus them. So it feels that it's harder to get a win-win remote. How can how can be how can the negotiation be set up? How can how can people interact? How can they build trust so they strive for a win-win? Yeah, so that's a very it's a very good question. And and I think, you know, like the, the research that I just you know mentioned before and you know our findings actually. Although these findings provide like very detailed insight into when face-to-face -face or richer channels actually help or hurt, uh, and a very important shortcoming actually of all these studies is that they are conducted in a laboratory actually where people you know do a negotiation exercise and never meet again. Right? Now the real world doesn't work like that, right? We often like meet again, or we may meet someone actually that you know we negotiated before. So our reputation really matters, right? In this sort of situation. And we have like multiple rounds actually of, of negotiations. The other thing actually that is different in the real world is that we actually typically have the option to select multiple channels, right? Not just one channel. Because in these experiments, actually you only have face-to-face -face or only WhatsApp, right? And in the real world, we can use like lots of different channels. So our follow-up work actually reveals that these insights can also be used actually both in a sequential way as negotiators enter different stages of the negotiation, but also simultaneously within a specific stage. So let me clarify that. Right? So, so sequentially, I think what our research so far like implies is that you know, when we negotiate online, uh, we need to think very carefully and assuming that we have choice in terms of like the channels, we need to consider very carefully actually when to choose which channel, right? And, and that depends actually on two factors in our view. So first of all, it depends on the relationship that we have with the other side, yeah? such that when it's, when it's the first meeting yeah, that we will ever have with this person, when we don't know the other side, yes, face-to-face -face contact actually is better. But if it's not possible, uh, then go to the next best option or the rich option, which is video conferencing, uh, which is also better actually than on the phone. And the phone is better again than over email. Right? So we clearly see actually some evidence for that. Now, also when, you know, the relationship is fairly cooperative already, it doesn't really matter. And as I mentioned before, when it's very hostile and competitive, actually more indirect ways actually to communicate actually are better. So we can also think about this sequentially, right? It's not just a one-off negotiation where you may be more competitive or more cooperative. This cooperative or competitive mood may also change over time as you negotiate with the same sort of uh, person. So... Choose the channel also based on the relationship with the other side. Also think about like choosing the channel carefully actually as the negotiation actually gets more complex. So we also find actually that when the negotiation is more complex, involves like very complex multiple issues, richer channels actually are better. When they're pretty straightforward, uh, fewer issues, it doesn't really seem to matter as much. Right? So we can think about this also actually as a toolkit and we can pick and choose like different channels like for different stages in the negotiation now what if we cannot select the channel right i think that also goes back to your question like you know if we're stuck with um with online and virtual tools so even when it's not possible to meet in person we actually find that having a video or phone conference actually to establish rapport 
and a bit of trust actually is preferable to starting with an email negotiation right away. And so this is research actually that was done quite a while ago already. It's like 15 years ago, even more than that, by Michael Morris from Columbia University. And where he actually showed that another method actually for to prepare for email negotiations is to become acquainted and before we really start. And so what they did in their studies was that they had like MBA students from Stanford and Kellogg negotiate with each other over email. But in one group, uh, they actually had a quick phone conversation before they started the negotiation to get to know each other. Whereas actually in the control group, they did not have that and they had that actually over email. And so what they found was actually that that small talk conversation actually that they had on the phone was sufficient actually to establish a more cooperative tone in the email negotiation. Now, this small talk was not sufficient to translate ultimately into better outcomes. And we also find actually in some other research that we've done is that it is sufficient actually when you also couple this actually with some common goals actually in the negotiation. What do you want to have achieved actually for both of you? Right? These sort of conferences. Um, so we can get acquainted actually before we start, right? Try with a perhaps like not a face-to-face -face conversation, but at least with a phone conversation. Also, actually, all the, even all the research actually that was done by Don Moore and Terry Kurtzberg and Lee Thompson and also Michael Morris showed that getting to know each other but also actually highlighting actually the commonalities between my group and your group. Uh, so uh, avoiding kind of like these in-out group kind of like distinctions uh, also really um, went a long way actually to get people to establish a more cooperative orientation. So they actually found that in the context of email negotiations, that when we highlight that we're members of the same group, same organization, same university, or when we engage in some mutual disclosure, self-disclosure before we start, that can then be sufficient actually to you know, already you know, be willing to cooperate more and also kind of like find like better deals over time within that email negotiation. So that is one way, right? So we can actually uh, try to get acquainted before we actually um, uh, start the negotiation over email or in a text-based format. Now, and you can push that logic even further and you can wonder like, well, what if it's not possible to have that phone conversation right? uh, before we actually do uh, start the email negotiation? So here what we find actually is that, uh, that we really need to also think about like the words that we use in our email or in our WhatsApp conversation. Right? So if it's not possible you know, uh, to, um, to meet before the negotiation starts. Uh, you can also actually frame the content of your you know, communication more carefully uh, to frame the exchange actually in a more constructive way. So, for example, you know, what we found actually uh, in several studies uh, is that when we use more collective frames of reference, uh, such as and use plural pronouns, such as we, us and ours, and uh, we can use it very selectively, we also actually find, and we do this especially early in the conversation, we also see that it sets the tone actually uh, in a much more cooperative way, which then eventually helps the parties also to share or feel a little bit safer in terms of like sharing information and then finding also more creative agreements. We've also done actually studies at INSEAD where we instructed um, negotiators who were negotiating online. This was in the context actually of job negotiations to mimic each other. Uh, each other's language over, you know, in an online conversation. And so if you use certain jargon, right, 
I would do the same. If you were to use certain words, I do the same. But of course, we don't overdo it. Right? And so we gave uh, these negotiators these instructions to mimic their counterpart actually, you know, strategically. And especially actually, and we also looked at, you know, whether they did it at the beginning, at the middle, or at the end of their negotiation. And actually what we find is that when we strategically mimic the jargon of the other side, especially early in the negotiation, not late, we find the same sort of like effects, right? Such that, you know, mimicking, you know, the other side actually, you know, in a subtle way, you now also kind of creates some cooperative momentum. And why? Because you know, without really thinking about it, you feel that I'm more like you simply because I mimic you a bit more. And because you feel that I'm more like you, now you feel a bit safer actually to share some information, which I can then use uh, to uh, find more creative agreements. So, um, so this is, you know, I think we can do a lot actually in terms of like selecting certain words and selecting certain like kind of emotional words actually to, um, you know, to, to, to promote a more positive and more cooperative tone. So the key finding here is really that you would want to enrich your relationship as much as possible, even when you cannot use a rich communication channel. So I mentioned like how we can use like different channels sequentially, but we can also use them simultaneously. So we've done like some more recent research actually that. Uh, also highlights the advantage actually of um, being able to use multiple tools at the same time. So for example, if you are interviewing me for a job, uh, I can also have my computer open and, and look at my preparation actually. And as we start to exchange offers, I can see actually how good these offers are given where I started. We've also done work actually on team on team negotiations where everyone was actually working in a different location, completely virtual. And so there we actually found that, you know, that it's, it's, uh, it's not so much actually whether you can see the other side, so that was always fixed, so they always saw each other actually over video conferencing, but we also gave them the option to communicate within their team, right? So there was three versus three, and the three members on one team could also have, they had a WhatsApp chat open. And in that WhatsApp chat, actually, they were also communicating and coordinating. And so we find actually that, you know, when we have that WhatsApp chat open, and we prepare very carefully actually for, you know, the roles that we all play, uh, someone being the lead speaker, someone being the number cruncher, we actually see that those sort of teams that multi-communicate or multi use multiple channels actually also slightly out, out, uh, outperform face-to-face -face team. This is all very fascinating. Very quick question. Because um, I, I read some um, uh, and, and listened to some videos on uh, how to communicate remotely, and a lot of them say that showing hands, making eye contact, uh, using emoticons actually help build build trust. Do you do any kind of research on that? Is it true or not? Because it's harder well, to do on online. Some easier like emoticons, but still you're not showing emotions. So we did. So we actually um, so together with my uh, with my father, who's a neurobiologist, we actually teamed up at some point and also published some research and did some research and published that actually on the role of eye contact in video conference. Uh, negotiations and uh, and there we see actually that it depends actually very much right? it depends actually on you know what how comfortable people are making eye contact and uh, and so what we did is we had a special uh, setup actually with a, a device that you know enabled video conferences but it also enabled you actually to make eye contact or have 
you know, a typical video conferencing conversation like we have now, and we don't really know whether the other side is making eye contact. It could be, or it could not be the case, right? And so it leaves you a little bit uncertain. And so what we find there actually in that research is that it strongly depends actually on whether or not you are comfortable actually with, um, with, with making eye contact. And specifically in this, in this research, we looked at the role of gender. And then there's a lot of research actually that also suggests that, you know, when two men actually negotiate, they associate also, eye con they're a bit more sensitive to making eye contact and they interpret this staring or eye contact or excessive like eye contact also as like strong attempts actually to dominate the other side, uh, as opposed to not making that eye contact. Whereas women actually don't, don't feel the strong like negative emotions actually uh, with, with excessive eye contact. And so, so based on this earlier research and consistent with that also, we found actually that you know, for men actually making eye contact very salient, for men who did not know each other, that's a very important qualifier, uh, for men who did not know each other actually, it made them think more of the fact that the other side actually was trying to kind of cheat them or mislead them. And therefore they responded actually more positively when we kind of like muted that eye contact. I then put it like in a similar, you know, or in a traditional like video conferencing setting. Whereas actually for the women in our study, actually they, you know, it didn't hurt them at all. In fact, it seemed to help them a little. So I think this, uh, I think we need to be very careful, right? In kind of like overstating some of these claims that, you know, one technology or one specific action is always better. As we know, it always depends, right? And it's important to also understand what it depends on. So what we find is that, you know, these richer communication channels, their effect, really depends on the relationship that people have, but it also depends actually on people's preferences actually using that technology. Uh, Roderick, uh, I know the time is near that we end this conversation, but I did find one of your studies really, really interesting. And that was about uh, remote negotiations and how to influence the majority, right? So if you are a minority and you do feel strong about your um, opinions, but you cannot make the other party see your and hear your voice. How do you make that happen? Can you can you say something about that? Yes. Yeah. So this is uh, research that I've uh, done actually uh, with my colleagues uh, Kathy Phillips and Michael Shearer, and uh, where we studied also like minority influence, right? And what we typically see is that minority members actually have a very hard time making their voices heard in group discussions, um, and that is because there is on the one hand actually a strong pressure from the majority actually to push the minority member in a particular way, but also because minority members actually simply because they have like the you know, only or minority opinion, right, the only different opinion, they may also start to question themselves right, and doubt themselves whether their opinion is indeed like you know, the correct opinion. And so what they do, as many of us actually do, they conform right, to, to the group norm. And um, so this can be, and conformity is not something bad, right? In many situations, it's actually not very helpful. We wouldn't be able to get along as a society, actually, and as a group, actually, if we wouldn't conform to some extent. But it can be bad, right? And a lot of, like, group decision-making settings, actually, so let's imagine, like, a hiring situation where you need to select which job candidate, actually, to make an offer to. Uh, uh, and imagine that you are making a decision between three different, like, candidates, and they value, they all come with like unique attributes. Uh, but it turns out actually that the minority member has a little bit more information or more accurate information. Uh, uh, so in other words, the minority opinion is actually you know, 
bit better, a bit like more precise and a bit more accurate. So under those sort of situations, actually, where the minority member actually is right, the rest of the group is wrong, you can imagine actually that these conformity pressures can actually be really bad, right? Because then they will just agree with whatever the majority says. So the majority member actually will you know, try to you know, sway their opinion in another direction. So what we've done actually in these, and so the question here is like, how do we get minority members actually to speak up? So what we know actually from decades old research is that it's incredibly difficult right, for minority members to influence majorities. So they need to be consistent uh, and repeat their arguments. And if they do all of that, they will get a little bit more influential, but still not so influential actually to change the group's opinion as a whole. And so, you know, what we do know from prior research is that uh, whether or not minorities are uh, influential does not only depend actually on how persuasive they are, but it also depends actually on the majority, majority groups like willingness to listen to the minority. And so based on those findings, we thought, well, actually virtual teams, and especially in like in online settings, you can imagine that under certain situations that majority members also feel kind of compelled they, uh, to listen to the minority member because you know, they may not have that much power. And so specifically what we were interested in was like the opportunity to engage in secret side conversations. Uh, and so typically, you know, what we do is we meet uh, or what this was kind of like the old norm, we would meet all together in a room and it could be like in person or it could be like in a you know, group video uh, conversation. And we knew that that was actually the only way we could actually interact with each other. So in other words, that would also make majority members actually feel a bit more powerful. And what we did in this experiment, actually, we also instructed the group members that they had like the opportunity to engage in side conversations with each other. So even while we would be sitting here in this video conferencing chat and all be there, uh, we also knew that we could actually send like secret messages to each other and try to try to and trying to convince the other side. And so we found actually that in the those sort of settings, actually, when we really kind of like highlight the salience of the, you know, these, these secret side conversations, that uh, the majority was more willing also to listen uh, to the minority uh, opinion. And it was not because minorities actually were more vocal and were trying to use these secret side conversations actually to convince the majority members. It was because the majority actually felt less powerful to act as a united front. And therefore, actually, you know, realized that they had to integrate uh, all the different opinions more so than they would typically do. So basically, the advice would be for minorities who feel strongly about their opinion is to find the opportunity and engage in this side conversations so they can influence someone in, in the majority group. So highlight then, that. Yes. Yeah. Highlight that and get an ally. Right. So yeah. I think the moment you're not alone anymore, that changes everything. <laughs> Roderick, thank you so much. I think this has been great insights and great education on remote and not only uh, negotiation and, and conflict management. Thank you so much for, uh, for today. Well, thank you for having me on your show. Thank you. I feel like we have so much more to discuss, but hey, maybe we can do another one at some point. <laughs> I'd be happy to. Thank you. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.